Life's Everyday Mystery Solved. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. There's antimony, arsenic, aluminum, selenium, and hydrogen and oxygen and nitrogen and rhenium, and nickel, neodymium, neptunium, germanium, and iron, americium, ruthenium, uranium, europium, zirconium, lutetium, vanadium, and lanthanum, and osmium, and astatine, and radium, and gold, protactinium, and indium. Well, happy and Easter to and all of you celebrating that holiday. And uh, we'll celebrate along with you here today. We're going to talk about eggs, because after all, they're a big part of the Easter holiday. And we'll also talk about rabbits. Why rabbits? Well, you know, the Eastern bunny. So we'll mention rabbits as well. First, though, uh, something that was hanging over from last week. Didn't get an answer to this. I had asked a question about why the U.S. had an increased need for fluorine during uh, World War II, the element fluorine. The answer is that it was needed for enrichment of uranium. Uh, uranium-235 is what you need in order to make nuclear reactors and atom bombs. And it has to be enriched uh, because naturally, or naturally occurring uranium only has about 0.7% of U-235. Most of it is U-238. So you need to enrich it from uh, about 0.7% to 4.5%. And um, uh, uranium oxide, when you mine it, is uh, mostly uranium-238, which is not useful. So it has to be uh, enriched. And this enrichment is done by converting the uranium oxide to uranium hexafluoride, which is UF6. And uh, since UF6, uh, when converted to gas, is heavier uh, 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 molecules of when it has a U238 in it, you can separate the UF6 that has U238 from the one that has U235 and by a process known as uh, gaseous diffusion, or you can do it also by gaseous centrifuge. Anyway, uh, the conversion of the oxide to uranium hexafluoride requires both elemental fluorine and hydrogen fluoride. And it's very dangerous work. Uh, hydrogen fluoride is extremely, extremely corrosive. But anyway, once uh, you've separated these, the hexafluoride is converted to uranium oxide, uh, UO2, which is the fuel in a nuclear reactor. And uh, it was way back in 1906 that Henri Moissan got the Nobel Prize for isolating fluorine. Today, the source is uh, calcium fluoride, CaF2, and that's converted to hydrogen fluoride, sulfuric acid, and then the hydrogen fluoride is electrolyzed to yield fluorine and hydrogen. These two must be kept apart because they react explosively. Anyway, so today, uh, large amounts of fluorine can be produced by this, this process. So back in World War II, uh, fluorine was really needed to enrich uh, uranium to make the nuclear bomb and was needed for the Manhattan Project. That brings us to a question that I asked this morning on the uh, trivia show, which was about an acronym. And the acronym that I was after uh, was uh, one that was used in many, many media reports about the potential health hazard of uh, uh, pizza boxes, and uh, microwave popcorn gas. And the acronym that I was after was PFAS, uh, perfluoroalkyl substances. And uh, these have been in the news a great deal recently because of um, problems. The potential problem with these very, very widely used chemicals 
it, uh, is that some of them have toxicity in many different ways. They may be endocrine disruptors, some are potentially carcinogenic, and unfortunately, because of our tremendous use of these PFASs, they end up in the environment, they end up in, in, in water, and there's a lot of concern about what this means. Uh, you've probably heard about the uh, notion that uh, sperm counts are going down globally. Nobody knows exactly why, and some of these environmental chemicals have been um, implicated uh, in that. Now, the trouble with these perfluoroalkyl substances is that they are tremendously useful in all kinds of ways. Uh, they resist both oil and water, so they are used to, um, they're incorporated into packaging, food packaging material, because when you're getting your hamburger, you don't want the paper that it's wrapped in to be totally soaked through with grease. So a lot of uh, perfluoroalkyl substances are used there. Uh, Nonstick cookware, of course, also is made with these. Uh, medically, they have uses. Uh, they're used in the making of artificial hearts, for example. Uh, they're used as lubricants. Uh, there are about 1,400 different perfluoroalkyl substances that are used for dozens of purposes. So it's not possible to just eliminate these compounds. The question is, how do you control the ones that are potentially toxic from getting into the environment? And there's uh, a lot of, of uh, work being done on that. And uh, of course, the reason that we now know that they're getting into the environment is because we have pretty sophisticated analytical techniques so we can find these things down to, to parts per trillion. Anyway, we're going to hear a lot more about perfluoroalkyl substances in the future, both because they are so useful and because of their potential uh, toxicity. All right, let me throw a couple of questions out uh, for you uh, to ponder over uh, this, uh, this uh, Sunday. And uh, let's start with um, Margaret Thatcher. Margaret Thatcher, of course, was uh, Britain's uh, uh, prime minister. And uh, she had a portrait of a Nobel Prize winner hanging in her office. So that's my first question. A portrait of what Nobel Prize winner was hanging in Margaret Thatcher's office when she was Prime Minister of uh, England? One other question. What is the link between Vulcan, the Roman god of fire, and hockey? So we're looking for the link between Vulcan, the Roman god of fire, and hockey. All right, now I said that we were going to uh, talk about uh, eggs because it is Easter. Let's talk about them, colored eggs. Not the kind that you make by dipping into a dye, but the natural color of eggs. Do you know how you can tell if a chicken will lay white or brown eggs? Just look at the bird's earlobes. Yes, chickens do have ears, although they are hidden by the feathers on the side of the head. When these are pushed aside, the openings that serve as ears appear. There's no outer ear, such as we have, but chickens do have earlobes, which can be clearly seen. The color of the lobe varies with the breed of the chicken, ranging from white to almost black. Chickens with white earlobes lay white eggs exclusively, while birds with dark lobes lay brown eggs. And no, this is, this is not an April Fool's joke, this is true. The fascinating Araucana breed of chickens 
can even have earlobes that are a pale green or blue color. Sure enough, they lay eggs of the corresponding hue. It appears that the same gene that determines the color of the earlobe also determines the color of the egg. The color in turn is determined by the presence of hemoglobin breakdown products called porphyrins. Hemoglobin is the molecule found in red blood cells, and of course it transports oxygen. Red blood cells constantly break down and new ones form. During breakdown, hemoglobin is metabolized into molecules we call porphyrins, which can have different colors. The specific way that hemoglobin is metabolized into porphyrins is genetically controlled, meaning that the color of eggs, which is where porphyrins are eventually deposited, is also under genetic control. There is no nutritional difference between brown eggs and white eggs. They are laid by different varieties of chickens, that's all. Obviously, there's a chemical difference in the shells. The brown eggs have more of a variety of uh, these porphyrins. These actually fluoresce when exposed to ultraviolet light, and that's an interesting phenomenon. When chickens were first introduced to New England, they were of the brown egg-laying variety. So white egg was likely to have come from somewhere else and was probably not as fresh. This certainly was the case before eggs were transported in refrigerated containers. Chickens in the New York area were always white egg layers. So if New Yorkers wanted fresh eggs, they bought white. Today, of course, egg can be transported large distances and still stay fresh, but the tradition has been maintained by and large. The Food and Drug Administration in the U.S. advises that eggs be kept at a temperature of uh, 7.2 C or under. Only the refrigerated eggs should be purchased and kept in the carton inside the fridge, not in the fridge door. And the eggs should be used in about 30 days. Always make sure you wash your hands after handling raw eggs. When ordering Caesar salad, make sure the restaurant uses pasteurized eggs. Not a good idea to eat raw dough containing eggs. Scrambled eggs should not be runny. They should be uh, almost solidified if you want to make sure that there are no remnants of uh, salmonella. Uh, Hard-boiled eggs should not be unrefrigerated for more than two hours. So there's a little bit of Easter egg story for you, but we'll get back to a broader discussion of eggs because I want to tell you how to make that perfect hard-boiled egg so that you don't have the flat bottom, you don't have the green coloring around the yolk. And uh, that, of course, means that we're going to have to look at some interesting chemistry there. But also, uh, let's get back to the questions that I asked you. Margaret Thatcher, when she was Prime Minister of England, had a Nobel Prize winner's portrait hanging in her office. Whose portrait was that? And the other question I have for you is, what is the link between uh, Vulcan, the Roman god of fire, and hockey? If you know the answer to that, you give us a call at 514-790-0800. You can also obviously call that number for any question that you might have. You can also text us at 514-800. you can use the Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800.
We are back, and I'm Joe Schwartz. I direct McGill University's Office for Science and Society, and uh, our mandate there is to separate sense from nonsense and make sure that you guys are up to date on what is happening in the world of science. Um, obviously, I have no control over the advertisements that are used during this, uh, this show, uh, so uh, obviously there's no question of endorsing or not endorsing anything that uh, that is advertised. I have absolutely nothing to uh, to do with it. All right, I have two questions that are out there, and uh, one of them was about Margaret Thatcher. Uh, what portrait was hanging in her office when she was prime minister? And the other one was uh, the relationship between Vulcan, the Roman god of fire, and hockey. Uh, I do have a text uh, answer to that question. Actually, several people have texted in the correct answer to that. The hockey puck is made of vulcanized rubber. Now, what does that mean? Rubber, of course, is a natural exudate of a tree uh, that uh, originally grew in South America. But uh, in order to make it hard and usable, it has to be treated with sulfur and heated. Sulfur then cross-links the long molecules of rubber and hardens it. This is a process that was discovered by Charles Goodyear. And uh, Goodyear discovered it by accident when he was trying to improve the properties of rubber. And he was trying to mix it with all kinds of substances. And he had some sulfur on the stove. He happened to spill some of his rubber latex and the two mixed. And he found that it hardened and thus was born vulcanized rubber. And uh, that's what hockey pucks are made of. And if you've played hockey, you know how hard that is, which of course is the reason that uh, you have to wear all of that equipment to protect yourself from the uh, uh, brutality of uh, a Shea Weber shot with that vulcanized rubber puck. All right, uh, so we still have the other question hanging out there, which is uh, about the portrait that Margaret Thatcher had hanging in her uh, in her office. But given the fact that we did have the answer to the other question, I will replace it uh, by the following. In the 17th century, a test was performed by pouring whiskey on gunpowder and igniting it. What was that test for? So what were they doing in the 17th century? by pouring a little whiskey onto a little pile of gunpowder and uh, attempting to ignite it. What were they testing for? You give us a call at 514-790-0800, or you can text your answer to 514-800. All right. Well, I, I said that we would go back and talk some more about uh, eggs, especially the hard-boiled variety. So first, we need to understand why an egg hardens when cooked. And that is simply a matter of protein chemistry. A raw egg is mostly water in which protein molecules, along with some fat and cholesterol, are suspended. The proteins, which of course are long chains of amino acids, are coiled up like little balls of string with minimal interaction with each other. Heat causes these molecules to uncoil, exposing sites on their surfaces where they can forge links to other molecules, other proteins. It is as if the string straightened out and then intertwined with each other. This microscopic clustering is manifested as macroscopic hardness. 
the molecular clusters also reflect more light, so the cooked egg loses its transparency. If heating goes on too long, water molecules, which have been trapped in the protein lattice, are squeezed out, leading to an even tighter protein structure and a rubbery texture. So that's why you do not want to overcook an egg. Now, what about that dreaded flat bottom? This can arise because a raw egg does not completely fill its shell. There's a little air pocket inside, which actually furnishes a chick with its first breath of air. If this air is not allowed to escape before the white hardens, the egg will develop a flat bottom. Older eggs are more prone to this because they have lost some moisture and therefore have a bigger airspace. As the air is heated, it expands and begins to escape through the porous shell. This is often evidenced by a telltale column of bubbles rising from an egg immersed in hot water. If the air expands too fast, however, it can crack the shell and torment the cook with white streamers. These form as the liquidy egg white, the albumen, spills out and coagulates in the hot water. Adding a little salt or lemon juice can circumvent this problem because like heat, these reagents cause the proteins to unfold, join together and harden. This happens immediately as the white begins to ooze out and as a result, the crack is sealed. But it is better to prevent the calamity rather than to try to fix the problem after it happens. So what do you do? Just take a nail or a thumbtack and make a little hole in the egg prior to cooking. The escaping air will prevent pressure buildup and will also allow the egg white to flow into the space previously occupied by the air. Therefore, there will be no flat bottom. Unfortunately, there's more than one way to crack an egg. If a cold egg is placed into hot water, the shell begins to expand. But since the shell is not of the same thickness everywhere, some areas expand more than others, the resulting stress leads to a fracture. What's the answer here? Place the egg in cold water to start with. Then bring to a boil, turn the heat down to a slow simmer for 10 minutes. After this, immerse in cold water and peel. If this sounds like too much trouble, you can seek out a farmer who treats his hens to carbonated water. This increases the carbonate concentration in their blood, resulting in stronger eggs. I'm told this is done in hot climates where chickens pant a lot and exhale a great deal of carbon dioxide. And apparently, they prefer. Perrier when it comes to carbonated water. An eggshell can undergo stress fracture upon cooling as well. Some parts of the shell will contract faster than others. The young man who heated seven eggs in their shell for five minutes in the microwave found out about this the hard way. Somehow the egg survived the pressure buildup in the oven, but when he sat down to enjoy the fruits of his labor, six of the eggs exploded. He was severely burned about the face. Not a good way to make hard-boiled eggs, obviously. How easily an egg peels depends on its age. Fresh eggs tend to have a higher carbon dioxide content, and some of this gas dissolves in the egg's moisture to form carbonic acid. As an egg ages, the carbon dioxide diffuses out, and the contents become more alkaline. This weakens the inner membrane that surrounds the egg and prevents it from sticking to the hardened white. Researchers have proven this by showing that fresh eggs exposed to alkaline ammonia vapor can be peeled readily. 
how do you know if there's going to be a peeling problem? Just place the egg into a pot of cold water. A fresh egg has a small air pocket and sinks. An older egg will float. That's an easy way to tell the quality of your egg. Even a perfectly shaped and peeled hard-boiled egg can have an inner secret, the greenish yolk. Don't worry. This is just a small amount of benign iron sulfide. Egg yolks contain iron, which readily reacts with hydrogen sulfide gas that forms as some of the proteins in the white of the egg decompose as they're heated. The older the egg, more likely the formation of hydrogen sulfide. As the gas forms, its pressure increases due to the high temperature, migrates towards the cooler regions, namely towards the yolk. So what's the remedy here? The remedy for the discoloration is to immerse the cooked egg quickly in cold water and provide an alternate region of low pressure to attract the hydrogen sulfide. Let's put it all together. Start with an egg that's been refrigerated at least a week, make a hole in the bigger end with a thumbtack, immerse in salted cold water, bring to a boil, reduce to a simmer for 10 minutes, plunge into cold water and peel. That's it. You will have the perfect hard-boiled egg. All right. Uh, we're going to take a break now, check the CTV news, see what is going on in the world, and after that, we'll come back, hopefully have uh, answers to the questions that I have posed, and I will tell you a remarkable story about Mary Toft and rabbits. Science you can use. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Look upon the universe with wonder in your eyes. Do you tingle with attention when you're taken by surprise? If a problem should perplex you, does it put your brain in gear? Then you're ready for adventure on the science frontier. All right, let's go to the lines and see whether or not Mark has an answer to my question. Hey, Mark. How are you, Dr. Joe? Good. Happy Easter. Thank you. You too. Yeah, okay. Uh, I'll, I'll take a guess. I didn't look on the internet or nothing about the cost of, uh, about the gunpowder with the whiskey. Yes. That would be to cauterize a wound. No. No. Nope. No. I was just wondering. <laughs> All right. All right. Have a nice day. Take care. Thank you. Let's go to Debbie. Hello. Hi. How are you? All right, you got an answer for me. Um, that's not what I'm calling for. I have a question for you. All right, that's as good. Okay. I was watching the Ten Commandments last night, as I do every year. Yes. And I'm a bit confused. Are you? Yeah. When Moses, uh, you know, told them about the plagues and everything, when he said that the firstborn of uh, Egypt would die, is not Ramses the first? born of Sethis? Uh, that confuses yeah, me. Yes, yeah, I understand your confusion. Yes, uh, so it should have not been his son, but he himself, right? Yes. Yes. Uh, yeah, I guess he must have been the firstborn because otherwise he would not have been the pharaoh, right? That's right, because Moses was uh, Egyptian, was... Um, Jewish. Yeah. Yeah. That's no, a very good question. All right. Maybe, maybe some biblical scholar will have the answer to that. Uh, of <laughs> course, uh, this, is, <laughs> this is where uh, the term Passover comes from, of course, because uh, 
God had said that the firstborn would die, but to uh, make sure that it was only the Egyptian firstborn, the Hebrews were told to put a mark on their door uh, with uh, blood so that the angel of death would know to pass over those houses. Yes. Yeah, so, yeah. Anyway, all right, so we'll see whether or not we have some biblical scholar who knows the answer to that. Okay, that's very interesting. Thanks. All right, uh, Arthur. Yeah, hi, Doctor. Hi. Uh, Sir Winston Leonard Spencer Churchill won a Nobel Peace Prize. Could it be his bust? No. Uh, the question was, uh, a portrait hanging in Margaret Thatcher's office was of a Nobel Prize winner. Not a bust, but a Okay, so, so was it Sir Winston, Winston Churchill? But no, it wasn't Winston Churchill. Oh, oh. It I have a question Winston... for you. Yeah. I saw uh, uh, an article about the use of eggshells where you sprinkle it around your plants and uh, slugs can't crawl over it. Do you know why? Uh, well, I would assume it's because of, of the cutting edges, that they're sh sharp edges. Not a chemical reaction with their slime. Uh, I, I can't think of that. I mean, eggshells are just calcium carbonate. I don't. Yeah, and another yeah. thing, uh, blue jays love to eat them. Do they? For the calcium. I guess so. Yeah. I guess okay, so. Doc. All right. Maybe okay. if the blue jays ate more of them, we'd see higher batting averages and more home run home runs. Right. Maybe. Okay. <laughs> All right. Thank you. All right, so we're still waiting for the answer to what portrait was hanging in Margaret Thatcher's office. And so the suggestion was uh, Churchill, Nobel Prize. Did, did Churchill win a Nobel Prize I, for peace? I don't remember that. I have, to, I have to check that. All right, so we're still looking for what uh, that portrait was and also looking for the answer to my question about uh, uh, what they were doing by pouring whiskey on gunpowder and attempting attempting to ignite it but i also told you that i was going to tell you a really really neat story so let's go pulling a rabbit out of the hat well what can i tell you that's sort of old hat but what about pulling a rabbit out of a woman's privates and that is exactly what happened in 1726 when mary toft an illiterate servant seemed to give birth to a litter of rabbits and assorted other animal parts. Incredibly, some physicians were taken in by this hoax, and it captured the imagination of England and also got the attention of King George I. The remarkable story began when Dr. John Howard was called to Mary's home to assist in her labor. But instead of a baby, she delivered what looked like animal parts. That didn't end the pregnancy, though and Howard was repeatedly called back over the next month to deliver first a rabbit's head, then the legs of a cat, and finally a litter of nine dead baby rabbits. Howard didn't know what to make of this bizarre phenomenon and sought help from other doctors. When the king heard about the story, he immediately dispatched Surgeon Nathaniel St. Andre to look into the matter. Much to his surprise, St. Andre also witnessed Mary giving birth to several dead rabbits and became convinced that some sort of supernatural event was occurring. King George thought that further investigation was warranted and sent German physician Syriacus Aulers to investigate. 
He too witnessed several rabbit births, but smelled a rat. One of the rabbits still had dung pellets inside, which contained corn and hay. Since Mary's uterus was unlikely to produce such crops, Allers reported to the king that he suspected a hoax. By this time, the story had become a national sensation, prompted by St. Andre's publication of A Short Narrative of an Extraordinary Delivery of Rabbits and Mary's curious explanation for strange prodigies. She claimed to have been startled by a rabbit while working in a field, which caused her to have a strong desire for rabbit meat, but being very poor, she was unable to satisfy the cravings. People bought the story because at the time there was a belief that emotional disturbances during pregnancy could influence the developing fetus. Maternal impression still held sway into the 19th century, exemplified by the case of Joseph Merrick, the elephant man, who claimed that his deformity was caused by his mother being frightened by an elephant during pregnancy. It isn't totally clear what Merrick actually suffered from, but the theory is that he was the victim of two very rare conditions, neurofibromatosis and Proteus syndrome. Anyway, in order to observe Mary more closely, St. Andre arranged for her to be taken to London, where other doctors could be privy to the remarkable phenomenon. Alas, no more rabbits were produced. Mary's story began to unravel when a porter was caught trying to sneak a rabbit into a room, explaining that he had been hired by Mary's sister-in-law. That prompted an official investigation, but Mary admitted nothing. Only when she was threatened with surgery to explore her insides did she finally confess that she had inserted the rabbit bits into her birth canal manually and managed to squeeze them out, making it appear as if she were giving birth. Why did she do this? The age-old answer, money. In the 18th century, it was common for people to pay to see human curiosities. And what could be more curious than a woman who had given birth to rabbits? Mary spent a few months in jail and then returned to relative obscurity. St. Andre attempted to vindicate himself by taking out an ad in a newspaper, apologizing for his mistakes and expressed hope that people would be able to separate the innocent from those who have been guilty actors of this fraud. But the public was not forgiving. St. Andre's patients deserted him and eventually died a poor man. Cartoonists had a field day with drawings of Mary spewing out rabbits surrounded by caricatures of gullible physicians who had swallowed Mary Toff's story. And that really is what makes this case so fascinating. Although medical education was still rather primitive at the time, there was certainly enough known about anatomy and reproduction to have dismissed Mary's rabbit births as claptrap. But it seems education wasn't then and isn't now a vaccination against folly. There are physicians today who advocate against vaccination and many who buy into homeopathy, coffee enemas, antineoplastons, alkaline water, energy healing, and other forms of woo that make no more sense than a woman giving birth to rabbits. But people do tend to believe the unbelievable. So there you go. You have this amazing story of Mary Toft, an absolutely true story, happened in 1726 when she claimed with some evidence that she was giving birth to rabbits. 
your source when you need answers. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Be a Unfortunately, I don't have any more information than we had at this time last week about the uh, graphene mask business. The Cuba government has recalled the mask that they had given out to uh, schools and daycare centers because apparently Health Canada found some sort of problem with the masks that were formulated supposedly with graphene. Even that to me isn't clear that those masks really were made with graphene. But uh, Health Canada has not released any information about what it is that they found. The only thing that uh, I think we can say is that that problem was only with the masks that already have been recalled. So there are no masks here in, in, uh, that we know of now that uh, are problematic uh, because Health Canada would have told us about the others. So I don't think for now, I don't think that's an issue. But uh, I'm still looking to find out exactly what it is that Health Canada discovered about those uh, those masks. But uh, uh, so we're still waiting on on that one. All right, let's go to Terry online. Terry. Hi. Hello, Dr. Joe. Hi. I'm calling about the portrait and and Margaret. Thatcher. Okay. Would it have been uh, Dorothy Hodgkin? The uh, yes, it certainly was Dorothy Hodgkin, and you know why? Because she had been Margaret Thatcher's uh, professor when she was at Oxford? Exactly, exactly. Uh, Margaret Thatcher had an undergraduate degree in chemistry at Oxford. Uh, She graduated from there in 1947. Yeah, apparently she was prouder of that, of being a first uh, prime minister with a science degree than she was of being the first female prime minister. Uh, Right, Uh, yeah, that's good to know. (laughs) Anyway... uh, her, uh, she did a dissertation uh, in her qualifying year for chemistry, and that was under the direction of Dorothy Hodgkin. And uh, Dorothy Hodgkin at that time already was, was quite well known uh, as an X-ray crystallographer because she was working on the structure of, of penicillin. And uh, she uh, eventually got a Nobel Prize in, uh, that she won in 1964 for determining the structure of vitamin B12. And uh, Margaret Thatcher was always very proud of being, uh, you know, having been a, a student of uh, Dorothy Hodgkin. And that's why she had her, her portrait. Terrific. And yeah, thank you very much for that answer. And uh, interestingly enough, uh, our principal here at McGill, uh, Dr. Suzanne Fortier, uh, also is a chemist by background. And also uh, her degree was in X-ray crystallography. So she has something in common with uh, Dorothy Hodgkin and with uh, Margaret Thatcher, because to be the principal of a major university like this, uh, you need to be both a politician. And of course, it also happens to be useful if you are a scientist. All right. I think we also have Robert on the line. Do we, Robert? Hi, can you hear me? Yes, we hear you. Perfect. Um, so I'm calling uh, in regard to the question for the uh, the gunpowder. Was that okay? Available? Fire away. Okay. I believe it has to do with the length of time that it burns for testing yes. the percentage of alcohol. So the, the very the, good. The proof would be uh, involving how long the uh, gunpowder and alcohol would burn. Exactly. Exactly. So the test was to ensure that the whiskey had not been watered down. 
And right, so exactly. they, they they would put a little bit of whiskey on the gunpowder and ignite it. And, uh, of course, uh, alcohol uh, burns. So the question was, will the gunpowder ignite once the alcohol burns off? Uh, and it would if there was no residual water to, uh, you know, to keep it from igniting. And I, I and, wouldn't uh, know the exact reason why it's called proof. I forget, but I, I remember that the word proof actually has to do with... Sure. Well, because it, it, it was, if it ignited, it was proof that it wasn't watered down. Okay, yeah. Yeah. And uh, so uh, t today, proof is, is uh, just a measure of the amount of alcohol uh, and it's twice the percentage of alcohol by volume, so that if you if you have wine, you know, which is let's say seven percent alcohol by volume, it would be fourteen proof. If you have whiskey that is eighty proof, it means it's forty percent alcohol by volume. Nice, great question. Yeah, very good. All right, so hopefully we've learned something here about uh, Margaret Thatcher and Dorothy Hodgkin and igniting gunpowder and Vulcan and the Roman god of fire and hockey and. Uh, uh, hopefully, you know, you've got some chemical education there. But uh, let me uh, pose another question since we have exhausted that one. In 1772, Antoine Lavoisier weighed a piece of polished iron and then he proceeded to set it on window ledge. A couple of weeks later, he weighed it again. What did he notice and uh, what was the importance of that observation? So again, we're back in the 18th century with 1772, Antoine Lavoisier, piece of polished iron set on a window ledge, weighed it, a couple of weeks later, weighed it again, made an observation. And the question is, what was that observation and uh, why was it so uh, meaningful? Okay, let me give you one other little Easter story here. And this time it's about uh, Easter Island. Easter Island is uh, an island off the coast of uh, Chile in, in, in the Pacific. And uh, the reason, that, well, it's interesting, of course, for several uh, reasons. Uh, most people, of course, have heard of, seen pictures of the statues of Easter Island, uh, with giant statues that, are, that line the periphery of the island facing outwards. And uh, we still don't know to this day exactly why the islanders constructed these uh, statues, you know, hewn out of uh, rocks and erected them. Uh, it seems it was, you know, in worship of the gods, likely. That's, I mean, that's what they did in, in, in those days. Uh, and it's uh, amazing to see these things. But, but there's something else that is very interesting about uh, Easter Island. And the natives there were always uh, running around uh, barefoot. But uh, interestingly enough, they never suffered from tetanus, even though they would, you know, cut their, their, their feet. And um, as you know, whenever, you know, we have a cut here, you always, you want to be tested for tetanus to see if those bacteria have somehow gotten into, into the body. And uh, so some researchers were interested in, in why this was the case. Why were the Easter Islanders uh, not getting uh, uh, tetanus? Well, the, the answer to that wasn't too difficult to, to find because they started to investigate the soil and test it for various kinds of microbes. And they just found that uh, the bacteria that cause tetanus just were, were not there. And, you know, they're not everywhere in, in, in the world. But there was something else that uh, came to the surface. Uh, they found a chemical called rapamycin. Uh, which is secreted by a type of bacteria that did live in soil sampled, 
samples gathered on Easter Island. And actually, that was by a Canadian research team back in 1964. And as is commonly the case, such newly identified compounds are tested for biological activity. And in this case, rapamycin was found to have immunosuppressant and anti-cancer properties and was approved in 1999 as an immunosuppressant to be used after organ transplants as um, also as uh, you know as a possible protector against cancer because it had anti-cancer effects at least in the laboratory and a number of synthetic modifications resulted in compounds known as rapologs that were eventually approved for the treatment of uh, of kidney cancer anyway research revealed that rapamycin and its analogs uh, block the action of a protein that coordinates nutrient uptake by cells. And if cells aren't fed, they cannot grow and multiply. So uh, it seems that it does have some chemotherapeutic effect. Uh, and uh, rapologs uh, look very interesting to scientists because they don't kill cells. They just keep them from growing and dividing. And uh, you know, it's fascinating that this was found more or less accidentally because researchers were basically looking at the soil on Easter Island and seeing why there was no tetanus there. And uh, instead, they found a bacterium that secreted this, this uh, natural occurring compound that has uh, interesting properties and uh, possibly will play a role uh, as a chemotherapeutic uh, agent. So there's my last uh, Easter story for you guys, because this was, of course, all discovered on Easter Island. So we learned about eggs. You know how to make uh, hard-boiled uh, eggs. Uh, you learned something about chicken earlobes and the color of, uh, of eggs, and uh, also how to prevent the yolk from being surrounded by a green tinge. And obviously, a lot of fascinating science there. Anyway, we have run out of time. But as always, we'll be back with you same time, same station next week. And until then, I'm Joe Schwartz, hoping all the chemistry in your life comes out just right. <laughs>